Welcome to Founder Stories, the podcast, conversations with David Adelsheim and the 10 founding wine families of Oregon's North Willamette Valley. During each episode, David Adelsheim, founder of Adelsheim Vineyard, will sit down with another early pioneer to recount the collaboration and formation of the Willamette Valley wine industry over the last 50 years. In this episode, David Adelsheim raises a glass with Charlie Corey, son of the late Chuck Corey at David Hill Winery. Enjoy. Chuck and Shirley Quarry came to Oregon around the same time as David left of the Irie Vineyards. Chuck and David had been at UC Davis during the 1962-63 school year and traveled together the next year in France. They shared a nursery planting near Corvallis and both purchased land for their vineyards. Chuck made wine under the Charles Quarry Vineyards label starting in 1970, but in 1978 lost control of his business to a financial partner. Chuck and Shirley died in 2004 and 2005. We interviewed their son, Charlie, at David Hill Winery near Forest Grove on October 16, 2020. We sat in the midst of vines planted by his father in 1966 when Chuck and Shirley owned this historic vineyard site. Charlie, I can't tell you... um, what uh, a pleasure and actually an honor it is to be sitting with you at where you spent a fair number of years yeah. up in a house. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool to be able to do this. And obviously we can't speak to your parents, but what I was hoping we could do is use you as a stand-in a bit for understanding what brought Chuck and Shirley ultimately to this house and to being part of the, the founding of the wine industry in Oregon. Um, and obviously we can talk uh, beyond that, but particularly, so where did both of them grow up? Two different places or? Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, what do they say? Good biography starts with your grandparents. Uh, my, my dad's father, my grandfather had a green thumb he, he was an artist by training and actually uh, was uh, an immigrant from Hungary. I was born in France, but was an immigrant from Hungary and worked in the uh, lace design industry during the Depression in New York. And when my uh, dad was nine, his parents divorced and his mother moved, he and his brother, to Southern California. He was born in Trenton, New Jersey. Actually, right next to the... Uh, Limburg uh, family. So when the child was kidnapped, they actually came to their house, the FBI. So that's another long on Long Island. That's another another story. But anyway, um, so he actually grew up from nine on in uh, Southern California. And my grandmother's story is his uh, father followed them to be close to the kids and came to her one day and said, "Elise, if you want me to help you with the boys." You need to help me. You're a good business person. She was a banker's daughter. I want to start a I want to start a floral business. And so she did the books, and he he raised flowers and sold them on Wilshire Boulevard. Wow. Up uh, in, while my up until my dad was in college, actually. So I think my dad had the inherited that uh, a little bit of the the horticulture piece from my grandfather. He really had a green thumb, a better green thumb than my dad, actually. Um, and then um, my mom, 
I, you know, she was from uh, the East Coast, uh, was born in Columbus, was raised in Connecticut. Uh, but I, I don't know, she, she went, uh, she was a nurse, went to Hawaii during the war as a nurse. And after the war, I don't know, she ended up on the, kind of an adventurous lady, I guess. And, uh, um, you know, we'll get into what, what, you know, so my dad, the story is, so my, my dad was, uh, went to UCLA. Right. Because uh, he, you know, <laughs> Southern California. And he, I asked him, well, you know, what did you study in school? And he said, well, meteorology. I said, well, why meteorology? And he said, well, I, I was like a junior and I needed a major and I walked out one day and I looked at the clouds, which I guess are unusual in Southern California, and decided I'll, I'll, I'll major in meteorology. That's what he told me. So I don't know if that's true, but so he got his degree in meteorology and he was in the NROTC uh, program and so he went into the war in Korea. You know, I didn't actually know he was a Korean vet my whole life until he was talking to my kids. Isn't that amazing? Wow. And he started telling these stories about the war that he never shared. I don't know if that's part of the experience of being a vet in war, wow. but he just never, I had no clue. I thought he was just sailing around in a boat. <laughs> so he got out of the, uh, out of the Korean War and um, got a job for Julius Weil and Sons. Um, I don't know how he got that job, but Julius and Weil's Sons was really one of the top Importers of very and fine. Were they based in LA? No, they were in New York. In New York, yeah, right? Ju yeah. Julius Weil, he passed away actually not too long ago. It was a real, uh, you know, driver of of degustation and the whole the whole shtick, you know. So they had like Bollinger champagne on his line card. They had. Uh, dry sack sherry. They had uh, B and B, you know, Benedictine. They had Druish uh, whiskey. They had these really a, a Behringer wines from Germany, very high end. And uh, he uh, called on, of course, all kinds of uh, wine shops in Southern California. My father, my father did once yeah. he got this job. Uh, but one of them was Lloyd's and Elwood. And Lloyd's and Elwood's in the 30s, 40s, and 50s was like the preeminent fine wine shop. This is where all the Hollywood stars went to get their fine, expensive wine. So my dad called on them, and it, he tells me, he told me that he was talking with Mike Elwood, and the topic came up about not just selling wine, but growing wine. And that's, he said, is where he really started the genesis of his thinking. Well, it turns out that Mike Elwood had been challenged by a, a provider of wine, a California wine, that if you know so much about fine wine, why don't you go try make it yourself? So I actually, my dad never exactly credited Mike Elwood with this, but I think Mike Elwood kind of put that, put that seed. I mean, he, well, my dad credited with, with him putting the seed, but Mike actually did it. Mike actually apparently did buy property in San Luis Obispo and actually tried oh, making wow. wine. Yeah, they made, they made uh, sherry, actually, is what their first shtick was. So uh, apparently they, my mom and he started talking and somewhere they were in some, on some trip and they just, let's do it. So he ended up quitting Julius Weil and Sons and we moved to Sacramento so he could go to um, UC Davis. That would have been in 60, 60. 60, probably, 1960, where he started, enrolled, 60, 61. And um, in fact, Joel Myers were our neighbors right across the street. 
And so I met Joel when I was four. Wow, and he, <laughs> he couldn't have been much older. No, he's my age. He's, yeah. he's like uh, born uh, like three days after I was. He's, so uh, he's, a, yeah. a, a vineyard manager who's now an important vineyard manager, but uh, was David Lett's first vineyard manager yeah. back in the day. That's right. So it's all <clears throat> intertwined with relationships. and So... Chuck is going to Davis. Does he have a job on the side or? He, well, my mom went back to work. Okay. She was a nurse, as I mentioned. And so she went back to work and uh, I think really supported the family. He did a little bit of selling for Julius Weil, but uh, he was pretty, pretty down deep in his studies, actually. Um, and uh, so, um, because, you know, I don't think he had much. Uh, science, I don't know what he had with an undergraduate degree in meteorology, but he probably had to take some courses on. Yeah, you would think. You would think. So yeah. he was pretty pretty engrossed in that. And then, of course, he, um, I think Winkler, Dr. Winkler and Amarine, Winkler on the viticulture side, Amarine on the wine side, as you know, um, had already given some thought about wine regions. You know, he, they had the four wine regions in California. And um, I suspect, again, I don't have real corroboration of this with my dad, but that just his background in meteorology, Winkler's got him thinking about, you know, varietal selection based on climate. And, uh, and so... Which was not a common thought no, in those days. I know, it seems so California. common sense today, yeah. like, well, duh. But plant actually, this variety in this climate, this variety in this climate. Yeah, that was like, no, you, you go down to low die and you plant anything and everything. Right. right? Who cares? You know, if it harvests in August, so much the better. Right. You know, you get it over Not with. much more vacation. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, why do we have to worry about the rain in October, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, it seems so like matter of fact today, but it was actually pretty controversial back in the day when he, when he came up with that idea. And one of the indexes that he got interested in was uh, the Thornthwaite Evapotranspiration Potential Index. And it's a really clever idea. I'm not not a technical guy, but it basically mimics the leaf, the evaporation of a leaf, because that tells you all kinds of things about humidity, day length, temperature, moisture, dryness. It's it's a very... And, And when that evaporation is taking place. That's right. Exactly. And so he, by doing that, using this rather simple uh, coefficient, you could compare climates from different areas. And so he, he got into that. And I, I, you know, again, I don't know exactly when he came up with this idea of the cold limit amelioration hypothesis. He, again, he never told me, but that was one of his thoughts or his ideas that, golly, when you start looking at the grape varieties, they all seem to ripen at the end of September in October, no matter what wine region you're in. Unlike California, where they, you know, Pinot Noir is going to ripen in August and Cabernet in September, you know, they, they, it's because they're not, and so he started thinking about that sort of reality. And again, he had been exposed to all these fine wines in his days at Julius Weil. So he, had a, he was pretty in, versed in European wine, which even in the 50s was not that common. No. So no. without Julius Weil, <clears throat> without exposure, so all these things were working together to help him 
come to come to some of these conclusions? In 6263, yeah. your dad, David Lett, Bill Fuller, Werner and perhaps others were in the Vietnology program at Davis. That's right. There were four. I think it was <laughs> Philip Tanyi who Philip was, Tanyi. was the fourth. Yeah. And I doubt, I mean, you were what, five at that time? or I was, uh, I was six and seven. Yeah. yeah. So you probably were not privy to the conversations no. they were having. No, unfortunately. But is it your thinking that they were talking about Oregon at that time? Or did that take a bit before they got there? Yeah, I don't think they were th talking about it then. I think that started happening um, after my dad went to Alizaz. Okay. Do you want me to read his the one section? Yeah, no, I want the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where did no, he say so yeah. th This is your father's master's thesis. That's right. Yeah. At Davis. At Davis. Uh, this is the one that isn't the final version, though. This is the one that speaks to Oregon, is my understanding. No, right? no, I don't. I don't think his thesis really did speak to Oregon. I mean, he was. Ah. He it, no, it was really talking about this idea of grapes ripening at the limit of their. Got it. And so he used the because remember what he needed to to demonstrate this was to look at grapes in actuality in California and different wine regions. So Napa Valley had distinct plantings and of course they tracked the Three climate. Three different sets yeah. of degree days. So, That's right, and yeah. so that was a, a, a research lab for him to, te to talk about this thesis. And so he wasn't speculating <clears throat> on, you know, can you, should we grow elsewhere? He was just saying, this is a way to select varietals. Got it. So that was the real thrust, and then, um, I think later, uh, you know, I, you know. So he wanted to continue to study cool climate viticulture. So by then, he was pretty convinced that ripening right up until uh, was important, and that you know, he want if you're gonna he wanted to grow the in French it's septentrional, which means northern northern climates. Alsace, Chablis, Champagne, Burgundy. He, he, for whatever reason, I don't know why he wasn't so interested in Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, I never don't know why, but he wanted to, so he wanted to study cool climate viticulture. Maybe because he was a contrarian and California was warm, <laughs> so he was going to do something that California right. wasn't famous for. Right. And so uh, he got a scholarship to go study with um, Pierre Huguin. And who did that come from, you know? Well, he applied. I think Winkler probably helped, you know, they helped yeah. him, and they had connections. So he he got a st what is called in French a stagiaire, which okay. is like yeah, a... Yeah, intern. An intern yeah. fellowship uh, for a year <coughs> in Colmar, the Institut National de la Recherche Agronomique, is, uh, the yep. INRA, is in Colmar, and they have other... But the one of the big wine stations was was there. It, it, it's, a, it's a great story because, <laughs> of course, they wanted to fill the position after World War II. And, but if they took any of the young men it was, uh, who could apply of any of the vineyards, uh, it was going to cause controversy. So 
Uglan had grown up up the Munster Valley where grapes aren't grown, but where uh, a lot cheese. of cheese. So yeah. he, he was studying, he was down in Montpellier, which was France's agricultural school, studying um, uh, bovine technologies. And Gallet apparently tapped him on the shoulder somehow, I guess he was a promising student, said, uh, you're going to be our next wine director, you're Alsatian, you speak Alsatian, but you're not involved with the wine industry. And so he pivoted. Wow. And he had the, he, that's how he got involved with himself. With and the he's got to have been, I mean, in 63, when you arrived, yeah. and, and, and it wasn't just Chuck who took this position, the whole family went Yeah, over. the whole family went. Well, again, that's part of the interesting piece. My mom actually spoke very good French. She had studied in France as a girl. Her mother divorced, went to Europe with her new husband, stuck my, grand, my mother in a French boarding school. And then after that, she went to Ecole de Lake Champlain in, in, the, in the, well, no, in um, Vermont oh, during summer school. That was a French. So she was, she was fluent in French. And so that was probably another help to get my dad over to France because she was fluent in French. That's the two boys as well. well. Yeah, I did not speak French. Uh, and so they stuck me in a French school. Uh, uh, and uh, my, I, I think I, I shared that with you, a story. We went back after my son was, um, my, one of, my son was studying French. I majored in French, and uh, so we went to visit him while he was there, and I, we went back to Alsace, and I went back to the home where we had, had lived in this little village called Riboville, and met the people who, who we hadn't seen for 50 years. We were crying and hugging. It was really, uh, really sweet. But the fellow at the, uh, where, I, where I connected was, had actually had the same grade school teacher, Mademoiselle Wintermantle, that I'd had. <laughs> so, little village, yeah. So we, our whole family went, yeah. It was quite a family adventure. evolution at that point in your father's thinking <clears throat> because and I don't mean to have you do mind reading or make up what he yeah. did but when when the family came back I presume sort of in June-ish of 64 mm -hmm. June, July, whatever the, the first thing that your father did was with his father they came to Oregon, right? Yeah, well, Dave, Dave Lett came to visit us. Right. He spent a month with us. Dad and he traveled quite a bit to Burgundy. I know they were gone quite a bit that period. It was over the 4th of July because they got a little tipsy and did a parade down the village. <laughs> and all the kids were following them. <laughs> Celebrate uh, the 4th of July together. Anyway, um, uh, and I, I think they were starting to talk about you know, where, what, what can, where are we going to go? What are we going to do when we get back? Yeah, because by in the fall of after we got back, uh, we, we got back in August because I went back into school. My grandfather, my dad, came up to Oregon to look for property in the fall of 64. Specifically for vineyard property. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and I think somewhere between Davis and doing a thesis focused on Napa Valley... And a year in Alsace, they were coming to Oregon. 
Yes. And my dad told me, because I asked him, I'm like, why Oregon? He said, well, we were looking at the Thornthwaite maps. They even looked at Ohio, because my mom's family was from Ohio, uh, but felt that Oregon had the more closest synonym, if you will, to the climates of Burgundy and Chablis, Champagne, Oregon. Uh, I mean, Alsace, that they were in, that they were interested in this cool climate viticulture. You know, why they didn't go to Craneros or why they didn't go to Mendocino. I, you know, uh, my dad was one of these guys who uh, he kind of always went big. You know, it's go big or go home kind of guys. So he ended up going home quite often. <laughs> <laughs> well, <coughs> baby steps was, he hadn't quite learned that, the power of baby steps, I would say. Now, now I don't know which path to follow okay. here, yeah. No, but, I mean, w- one of the things that you'd mentioned before is that he was, he was kind of tired of California and kind of, in some ways, wanted to say, this other state can do, has a climate that's closer to the classic wine regions. Yeah, yeah. But, but of course, there are areas in California... Sure. So why Oregon? I think, and I think I, I see this in my own my own philosophy of business. When you you know, if you were to peel back my, I'm a business owner, but one of the things that I find constantly driving me is differentiation. I'm just always looking for what the other guys aren't doing. <laughs> I don't know why, and I think I got that from my dad uh, because. Yeah, California, anybody can do anything. California, let's do something different. That was an important theme in his uh, life. I mean, his brewery thing, let's do something different. The microbrewery, you know, the, I won't get, you know, he became a Gallican Rite priest. He couldn't just become an Orthodox priest. He had to become this, anyway, I won't get into the technicality, but he was always looking for that, that contrarian, different thing that sometimes didn't always work out for him. Your father and grandfather come to Oregon. Yeah. Did they see this piece of property? You know, I don't... That's a great question I've pondered. I don't know. I think they did. As I recall, I think they, they did find it uh, um, and started started the process of coming together with some money. And, um, you know, they didn't have any money. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, coming table. together with money if you don't have it, what, yeah. uh, what did they do? They uh, borrowed from friends and family to try to scrape it together. I think my mom's dad gave them the money to get us home from France. <laughs> I mean, they were just, they were poor, poor students. Well, and, and particularly, yeah. yes, having just done, in essence, working for free for a year in Alsace. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> he, got, we got a, he got a little stipend, actually, from the French. Oh, good. A, a, student, a yeah. small fellowship. Yeah. Yeah, because my mom didn't work, uh, so we were able to survive. You arrive in Oregon sometime in 65? Yeah, we moved to Oregon to Forest Grove in the spring of 65 because I was pulled out of school and spent two months in the spring in Forest Grove. Grove. Yeah, And, um, and then the property... They were already looking at this property, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. I think it closed in the in the fall of '65, but the house was so run down. Maybe you'll get pictures of it that we couldn't move in. It, I mean, it was there was no windows. There were blackberries. There, were, yeah, it was pretty pretty disaster. So we lived down in Forest Grove up until 
I think the summer of 66. Chuck had brought some cuttings with him. Yeah, he. I mean, Dave had a little uh, uh, thing, uh, you know, nursery. That when he, when Dave Lett came up, and then uh, my dad had gotten some plant, given him some to plant. Um, you know, there's the whole Corey clone story, which we might get into, uh, coming over from from uh, from Alzas. I think the thing, the story that I told you earlier, I think is is. You know, I grew up with just so ingrained with climate is the key. Climate is the key. You know, sometimes the, I guess the disciples drink more deeply than the original master or whatever. I remember when I was studying winemaking in France, we went to Sancerre uh, because the Huglin had taken over directorship of a little teeny research center in Sancerre, which is over the hills from Burgundy to the uh, west. Yeah. Yeah. At the head of the uh, uh, Loire, Loire. Uh, yeah, the Loire, Loire. River, and the <clears throat> soils there are—it's kind of a complicated soil area because they've got flinty soils and you know very chalk. These what do they call um, uh, Tierre Blanche chalk in this little wine region of like 15 miles. And I remember distinctly the director of this research center. We went to this beautiful. Uh, Cellar, you know, had the Clara story windows shining into it with the oak, French oak barrels, and there was all Sauvignon Blanc, as you helped me remember. And they were tasting and competing, and the proprietor was testing the research director could he identify the soil? And I, that was like a, it was like a whole, um, uh, almost, uh, you know, uh, existential crisis for me because soil was not supposed to be important. <laughs> I'd, I'd been so ingrained by my, my dad. I'd, I'm sure he didn't mean to. He wasn't against, you know, goût de terroir, but I just remember growing up with this fervent commitment to this cause to prove out his thesis that, you know, grapes that are ripened, and actually all fruit was his stick, that ripen at the end of their growing season are going to have better organoleptic qualities than those that ripen quickly. Right. Yeah. So that that was always, yeah, he was a bit of a cause person. I think, a, you know, it wasn't just a business or even let's make wine. He wanted, the, the idea of a cause was a, kind of an important element in his and personality. In, and I think you're bringing up what is, in essence, the central role of your father in the industry. Hmm. which is this cause. And how would you describe at least how you perceive that cause to be? Well, I, th I think that you could make, uh, I mean, and first of all, it's his thesis, right, that varietal selection is best done relative to climate. Now, somebody might add soil to that, I don't know, but for him it was climate. And so could you, on a cause, create an industry. I, I don't know, that fascinated him, that idea. I mean, he was, I don't know, what you'd call him, uh, altruistic? That's maybe not the right word, but I don't have the right word for that. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, where other people in the wine industry were maybe um, more practical to some extent, were more reasonable uh, business people, because actually making wine is a business, right? Sorry, I know it's romantic, but <laughs> you, got, 
you gotta you gotta make money or you go out of business. That's that's you know as a professor of mine once said, uh, profits are not an option. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I think uh, I think for him the cause was what kept him going, and I think maybe helped pave a way for for others. I mean, you know him, you met him. He was sort of a like a. a Preacher uh, kind of had his his message. No, I mean, uh, uh, for a lot of us, first of all, this was the confirmation that we weren't throwing our life away. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that there was some level of science behind this idea of planting grapes in the Willamette Valley. Um, none of us have ever actually read it, but uh, <laughs> but we did. We had Chuck's. Um, dramatic reading, yeah. <laughs> if yes, you will, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. of it, and 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 in essence, David Lett's reflection on it, Bill Fuller's reflection on it, um, and and interestingly, I mean, the Ponzi's came here without knowing any of these people, but the first person they met was your dad, yeah, um, and. We met him pretty early after we started looking for land, and it it was, I think, the most compelling piece. That and the idea that you could make wine, that a human being could make wine, that it was not big corporations or foreign corporations, but a human being in Oregon could make, at least theoretically, great wine. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I think we can get that out pretty early, that your father was a difficult person for oh, a lot of people. Yeah. Um, because he was a true believer, um, and he didn't, he didn't tolerate fools very uh, easily. Yeah. And yeah. I don't mean that negatively. I mean, well, no, it, no. I mean, my dad was an arrogant person. Uh, he acknowledged that in his more vulnerable moments i think often arrogance is a is an underlying is an over compensation compensation for deep insecurity yeah. and i don't mean to psychoanalyze his parents and their problems and their issues but i think my dad that was that was part of his his uh a vulnerability and mm. so he he could be i mean it you would have had to meet his father. Uh, well, to, I did. I met him at least but, once. Yeah, my, my grandfather yeah. could. You think my dad could skewer? You, you see his father. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I, I think, and I, I think my dad. Um, you know, his his conflict style was. You know, we, everyone has a different conflict default conflict response. You know, some people avoid. Some people, his was to get competitive. If if you push him, he's going to come back harder. Uh, he and I had a few of those in our relationship, as you can imagine. But we, we were very close. I, I don't know why. We just really, I don't know, we always got along um, really well. But he, he, had, he had some friends who were really loyal, and he could also burn up relationships really bad. Yeah. There, I think I, I wrote that to you. you know, there, I, I've always appreciated Michael Novak, who is an author on business. He wrote a wonderful little book called Business is a Virtue. And he identifies three virtues of a business person. One is innovation. Well, my dad was an innovator, no question. The second is 
community building. Isn't that interesting that business people actually build community? They, they have to. Now, it's, it's a different type of community than, than singing songs at church, but it's a real business. It's a real relationship, you know, and com, com, commercial relationship. And the third is practical realism. I think my dad's weakness was this community building. He could, he could blow up his relationships that are so important in business. They just are, you know? And that was, I, I confess that that was one of his uh, besetting sins. And I didn't mean to focus on that quite as much, but I do mean to come back to the, the three points. And if there's, if there's one thing that I remember Chuck for, it's for building the wine community. Yeah, yeah, I mean, ironically. Yes, I mean, if he, if he had problems one-to-one, he also understood that it wasn't about his success. And he is the one person who felt we needed to focus on clones, on research, on all these things when everybody else was trying to make enough money to survive. And, I mean, the, the irony and sadness is that he didn't make enough money and the business didn't survive. Yeah. His own business didn't. And yet the wine industry prospered and did so well because of the direction that he had a lot to do with. Yeah, well, it is ironic. He, uh, he I mean, we, I, I spent my childhood being dragged off to the Wine Growers Association meetings. At the fire station. <laughs> Where, well, wherever it was being hosted with gallons, we wouldn't dare drink Gallo. That was verboten. But they was always drinking Almaden and <laughs> with cheap CK, CK Mandavi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, so he was a real advocate uh, for that community. Um, I think my mom also really was a kind of a community builder. So yeah, it's, and we're, we're all kind of paradox, aren't we? We're, we're, everyone's a mixed bag. It's a peculiar where his, his individual relationships could blow up, really go south. But generally, he was, you know, he's not a loner. He wanted to, to create a community. I, I mean, we were yeah. at, at Fuller's, and he, he said he spent six months living here yeah, while he yeah. was looking for land. Yeah, Bill lived with us for six months while he was looking for the land for Tualatin. Yeah. And he woke up one morning, came out of his room, and there was a naked couple lying in the... <laughs> In the in the common area upstairs, that was a winemaker from California. And That's right. Yeah, well, Shane, Shane, and what what's her name? Yeah, I remember that that couple. They were kind of hippies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, people were coming and going. I mean, it was yeah, it was a it was really fun place to grow up because there were people coming and going and all, all the time, exciting energy. Yeah. I do remember. I remember the out, outside on the west of the building, we, he had old tubs from Oregon, free, uh, Oregon Fruit Products. Literally, that was our crusher. He got my friend and I, these junior high kids, cr- literally crushing grapes, just like the French <laughs> in the old days. That's how we crushed them. And then he had a press. He had made a little homemade press. Well, and I yeah. remember when I came up here, I think it was with that first vintage, uh, he, he offered to taste some of the wines that were being stored and being 
I don't know what what day what time of the year it was, and we literally went out to these plastic bins with big plastic bags in them yeah. that the wine was in, because literally you couldn't afford barrels in yeah, those days. That's right. And we tasted wine by opening up the bag and sucking some wine out with a tube yeah. from the bag of wine. Yeah. So you were growing up with this, and in '74, you kind of repeated what. Your father did in 63, 64, you went to Alzheimer's. That's right. I got uh, I the same kind of fellowship with Dr. Uglan. Uh, uh, not, I, you know, I, obviously I wasn't going for a master's degree, so my, my role was more humble than my dad. I, they threw me out into the vineyard to work and into the winery to work. Uh, as and this was after you graduated from high after, school? After high school, yeah. yeah. In fact, I, met, I spent two years in France. I actually, the second year I was in the Jura with a negotiant named Henri Maire. In <laughs> no Ar- kidding? Uh, yeah. Uh, and so... He once came to Oregon. Henri Maire? Yeah. yeah. I loved Henri The old Maire. man. Yeah. What an amazing, what an amazing guy. He, he started... <laughs> he was one of those few French people who loved all things American. I mean, he was an American file. Oh, man. Computers. He wanted to make a factory. He had a factory to make wine. I mean, he was, yeah, he loved the gallo. I mean, he was just all things American. So that's pretty unusual. Yeah. He was a wonderful person. But when you undertook these two years, was it your fantasy that you would go back into wine? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was deeply, um, deeply, um, ingrained. I mean, I was fascinated. I was learning a lot, uh, I think one of the things that fascinated me about Alsace was how, to your point you made earlier, that, hey, actually normal people can make wine. You know, I was dragged around by, by some of the technicians and so forth. These are guys who, in their, they've been making wine for 600 years in their family, right? They, they had the vineyard, they make it wine. I mean, it was nothing, it was more pr- pretty down to earth. I really appreciated that about European winemaking uh, that that was something that i really came to appreciate how normal part it was of 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 life did had you sort of thought through what you were going to do after france well i was going to come back i was going to go study um probably uh biology to probably viticulture i was going to go down that road uh what happened was i ended up having a religious conversion i actually became I came to Christ uh, in uh, November of that year and ended up completely changing my direction. I have a degree in anthropology and linguistics <laughs> because I became a missionary. Uh, and then, yeah. In fact, I, I remember uh, visiting Henri Maire and he was so, he just could not believe that I'd given up the wine business. <laughs> I said, but Monsieur Maire, like think of it the, you know, because it, it, in, the, in the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down in the book of Acts and they think they're drunk with wine. Think, think of me as making spiritual wine. That didn't satisfy him very much. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, uh, yeah, I got completely out of the, the wine business and went a totally different direction with my life, yeah. But the other thing, the other thing, David, I wanted to say that didn't come up about my time in Alsace that yeah. we've talked about. Because so I, I was... Uh, 17, turning 18, right out of high school, went off to France. My French was not very good. 
I skipped studying French in high school the last year and taken up photography <laughs> for my elective, which is probably a big mistake. Uh, in fact, it was a mistake. So I was struggling with French, and I was very homesick. I was, oh, I don't know if you remember ever being homesick, but I remember it to this day. It's very painful. And you came to visit. It was the fall, maybe October. I'd done my own was a stagiaire in Burgundy and worked at the Lycée Viticole yeah. in Bonn. And for some reason, we were in touch, at least enough, yeah. that you invited me to come. I'd never been to Alsace before. <clears throat> and I came over and took me to Riboville and to INRA and introduced yeah. me to Col- uh, to Yuga. Uh, uh, we, we talked about the the clonal selection work that Hugelin was involved with, or I don't know that it was his particular focus, but... He and Julian, yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I asked if they would be willing to share the clones, and they said some version of sure. And um, after I left and came back to the States, you were left with the job of rustling up cuttings from all these clones that you had promised to send to Oregon State and sticking them in a package and sending them off with the, the stickers. Yeah. But having been in Burgundy for two months, it was helpful and, and zero English speaking in those days. Yeah, not like today. Everybody <laughs> speaks English in yeah. Europe, but yeah. they didn't then. No. Yeah. So it was helpful to me to, to uh, run into you and we we took a, a road trip up to uh, yeah. the Palatine yeah, we did. in Germany. Yep, yep. <clears throat> and I was... You had a Volkswagen, I think. One of those station wagon Volkswagens. Yeah, I mean, on a personal level, it was really helpful for me. You, you were like a shot in the arm. I, I know we're talking about wine and everything, but just David at a personal level, it was... You couldn't... I needed somebody, you know, somebody from home at that particular yeah. junction well, in my young life, so... You might not know how influential it was, but thank you. (laughs) Yeah. But that brings me to your question. I mean, here's a bottle of your wine, David. I don't actually know how you got interested in wine yourself. Even well, we I've traveled I've, together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our interest was more like, let's say, the Ponzi's or the Sokol Blossers in the sense that we had not done this. We, Ginny and my background were not in science, although I wasn't afraid of science. We first ran into Dick Erath and then to into Susan and Bill uh, Sokol Blosser and just the idea that they were doing this and that we met the Lats and possibly the Ponzi's. I don't really even remember who came to this May Day party in 71, but we, we knew these people and they were growing, they, were, they had planted vineyards, they were going to make wine. Um, soon enough, we tasted a bottle from David Latt and it just seemed like th- this would be fun, it would be rewarding and frankly, the idea of Building an industry of value, which was inherited from your father, um, I think gave us something more than just playing. That that gave us serious intent. Mm, um, yeah. 
my father still thought we were fools, but um, <laughs> it, but it was enough for us. And um, and even my father helped plant part of the vineyard. So it, uh, although I had plenty of screaming fits with your father, not plenty, but certainly a few, um, it was this thesis and his vision to use use what that taught to go to Oregon and then this need to for these these, these people who had been attracted to Oregon to work together to build something as opposed to what most people in most wine regions of the new world have done which is you've got a bunch of wineries that barely talk to each other and nobody knows who they are yeah yeah, it was very, you got to admit, it was very collegial. They were, we were always having parties. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> it just seemed like I was being dragged off to one party after another. <laughs> right? I mean, it was true. You guys... Well, I mean, we, we, did, we did a tasting in your living room of all the Pinot Noir wines we could find in, 19, in November or December of 1973. And, of course, around the same time, the cash needs, the financial needs of the winery drove your father to find a financial partner. Yeah, he, one of his schemes for getting money was to start uh, uh, growing grapes for the fledgling Oregon industry, as you know. So he and Dick Erath got together. Plants. Plants. Yeah. Yeah, the nursery business, growing plant, great plants. And that didn't work out, uh, but he had uh, a big nursery in uh, Southeast Portland, you were there. And then eventually they, they transferred there. it to here. And that was, that was going to be their scheme. They had a big contract. In those days, you could uh, limited partnerships were a great tax haven. So some New Yorkers got together and wanted to invest in a limited partner, plant a vineyard in, in, in near Salem. Eagle yeah, CLLs, yeah, yeah. And uh, so he got the contract to plant it, grow the grapes, plant it and everything. And he was, I don't know, it was just, there was a lot of grapes to, to grow because he also had other orders. And he was a month behind. And my dad being, this is where his community building skills failed him. Because whatever he did, and hey, I've worked, I, I'm in business, I, I work in New York. It's a tough crowd. New Yorkers, they can be tough. Uh, and um, they kind of fell out and they ended up suing my dad. And they won. They, they actually won. He bit that he has a breach of contract because he was late a month. And it cost them like all their money. I mean, they didn't have any money anyway, but yeah. it, I mean, that, that's the. Right. <laughs> kind of sucked, the, sucked them dry. And they were in real, they were in real trouble financially. I mean, they're always on the edge. I mean, they would buy, because by vocation, we'd buy one wooden window because it was plastic. So there was always a celebration we could buy a window and install it in the house kind of one at a time. You know, when you're a kid, you don't know that. But in retrospect, they they were really, uh, you know, every... Every extra dollar they had, they had to buy you know one stainless steel barrel or one oak barrel or you know that kind of problem. You know the story. I mean, it's it's a real challenge. I, I don't know how you guys, frankly. Well, and and it's one that we've heard nine different or ten different answers to. I mean, everybody had to solve this because yeah. 
nobody in this founding 10 wineries came loaded with cash. Yes. And uh, so um, what happened was, you know, they're on the edge. And uh, I, he ended up meeting David Teppala, who had was a successful businessman. His family had been in the hardware business and was interested. I think he wanted to really always be in agriculture, but his family kind of set him down the road of being in the family business, but he was interested in grape growing, and so they ended up creating a partnership. And uh, I, you know, I, I worked for a gentleman who years, many years ago, who got into financial difficulty and was forced to take on partners. And I, it just, I don't know, I don't have a lot of data, but my, my sense of it is, Partnerships are fantastic. My business, I've been in partnership for 16 years. I have uh, four par- uh, three partners. And it's a, it's a great experience. I'm, I'm, it's just a wonderful way to do business, if that's what you want and choose to start out with. But when you're sort of forced into it with a gun in your head, ah, that's a hard pill to swallow. And I think in the case of my former boss, it didn't work out. And I think in the case of my dad, it, it's just... Whether it's a, you know, humiliation, a humility problem, you know, ego problem, it's your dream is being broken. You got now. I got other people pushing and shoving. I can't. I'm not. I'm not my own boss anymore. And then with someone like my dad, you can imagine. Uh, pretty courageous of David Tepla, actually. <laughs> In my opinion. Uh, I just think, well, I think it's courageous of anybody to, to rescue someone and force them into a partnership. I, I think it's better to buy them out. And I, this is my business, yeah. just my limited business observation. But anyway, that's not what they did. And so, it, you know, they struggled. It struggled. And uh, eventually it sort of fell apart. I think David was good to my dad, frankly, financially. Um, in fact, it was that money that allowed them to start the brew, the, the Cartwright Brewing Company that they did, got out of the winery, uh, out of the property. But I think David probably early on realized this is not going to work. Charlie, before we go on, I'm getting thirsty. I don't know about you. Yes. Okay. Let's. This so, is a new bottling. I I think from David Hill, new label certainly, and this is the Riesling vines that your father planted. Mm, yeah. The 1919 vintage. Yeah. Great. And obviously, when your family left this place, the Teppelas Cheers. took it on, and then. That's right. I think it became Ruder Hill. After the people who had it at the turn of the 19th century. Yes, that's right. Because this had originally been uh, uh, a pre-prohibition, a vineyard. Yeah. 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 I think that's part of the reason my folk, my dad was and grandfather were interested in the, the, the property. Yeah, it had some, some background. Another, yeah. Cheers. Cheers, indeed. So I was, I was saying that... Um, yeah. This idea of my dad sort of went, it was, he was sort of the go big or go home. And uh, so even when he started the Cartwright Brewing Company, 
you know, instead of baby steps, sort of testing the concept of of brew, a beer and, and, you know, how to filter it. Do you filter, unfilter, all that. You know, he went out and bought a big bottling line, <laughs> had the, the vats for beer. I mean, he hadn't made a bottle of a beer yet. Uh, so that was sort of um, kind of my dad's way with him. I, you know, I, I think, uh, that, and, and certainly at times uh, created problems. Yeah. Got way over his skis, as they say. Yeah. So he didn't really get, he didn't really make beer commercially or only did it briefly? Yeah, or? only briefly. He, but he, again, he had the vision of, of, uh, of brew pubs. He, in those days, you could not serve That's beer. Right. And he had the vision. He, he saw, I, the guy just, you know, he was one of these alpha guys. Usually it's the beta guys who make the money, but the alpha guys are needed to kind of, Carved the way. He was, that was my dad. Yeah, yeah. And when the brewery didn't work, did your mom and dad leave for California immediately? Yeah. You know, I think at that point the sort of uh, yeah business failure is is a it, it, it's a it's a weight on right. the soul. I mean, I think they were. Was he a broken man? Mm, I don't know if he was a broken man. Um, there were other consolations. Uh, he had come to faith, so I think that was sort of an iron, ironic twist in his journey. So he sort of ju- started down that uh, path, but I think they, they, he just needed to get out of Oregon. I think it was too painful. All those dreams, you know. There's a, an old proverb, a Jewish proverb that goes, uh, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But if Desire realized is a tree of life. So they didn't get their, their desire realized, their dream. That is painful. Yeah, it was painful for him as a human being. Yeah. Your dad found a number of things to make money over the years, and, 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 but at some point you told me that he, came, he made a visit back to Oregon. Yeah, yeah. He, he came up because we were, my wife and I were with, and our children were living. We were back from being overseas. We were back in Oregon. And so he came up to visit us and decided he would make a trip around. And he, he saw Dave, Lat, and they had a great talk. Interesting about, the, about the, the business realities. You know, they talked about the dream and all that. But in the end, it was like, yeah, if you, like we said earlier, <laughs> you got to figure out how to make a profit, right? It's a cost of doing business, like paying the bills. And uh, so it, it was funny. They ended up talking more on the business side. Hmm. Um, they'd, had fall, they'd had a falling out. Diana says it's because uh, my dad was a conservative. And uh, D- David... Politically. Got, politically. And, yeah. be, and, and Dave had become less uh, enamored with the Vietnam War. And my dad was a vet. And so I think that... They, apparently, that was kind of where they, they just, that's the kind of thing my dad could get pretty uh, bent out of shape over. And so that maybe was the presenting problem. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the... Bill, he saw Bill Fuller. Oh, good. Yeah, he, yeah mm-hmm. Dick Ponzi. Yeah, he made, he made the rounds, saw the old crowd. I apparently didn't see you. He but. didn't see me, and I... Uh, but. I don't know. I, yeah. Time was who knows where it was, limited. and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he, did, he only had, it was yeah. Your dad and mom died in the late nineties. Am I remembering that? No, it was no, later than that. Two thousand four. Uh, I think it was yeah, July twenty third. My dad passed away. Yeah, and uh, 
he had lung cancer. He'd been a smoker in the yep. Navy and, and, a, and a diabetic. Um, so he died. And then my mom had had a stroke. He had taken care of her. Uh, and then she passed away nine months later. Mm-hmm. Brought her up to Oregon and she passed away. Yeah. Yeah, he died at uh, 73, relatively young age. Yeah. yeah. Everybody that we've interviewed, of course, mentions your dad. Mm. Um, I think because of this, what we talked about earlier, his vision of us needing to create an industry, a community that would that would work together. And I don't I don't know if he was a great collaborator, but he was a great instigator. Yeah. That's actually great insight. I don't think he was a very good collaborator at all, but he was an instigator, a bit of a Pied Piper. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, he, the, the whole idea that the industry needed research at Oregon State and we needed to figure out a way to pay for it, and he came up with this sort of modification of a commodity commission where we would be taxed by the OLCC, 1250. And this was in 1977. I mean, this is crazy early. And we were all paying 1250 a ton so that we would have a fund of money to send to Oregon State. And I don't know that this was him alone. Certainly, I'm, I'm, I'm sure Ponzi and, and Erath and, and probably Sokol Blossers. I mean, I think a lot of us worked on that. Yeah. But it was the idea that we had to do this to be a serious industry was really Chuck's. And... So there's there's that piece and and the Table Wine Research Advisory Board that became the Oregon Wine Advisory Board, which became the Oregon Wine Board, now has a budget of two to three million dollars a year, and is all an outgrowth of this idea that we needed to collaborate and help pay for this the research that would give us a future together. Yeah, I mean, he, 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 he could be, you know, pretty academic. I mean, he, he thought that way. That was interesting. He could have been an engineer, actually. <laughs> Maybe uh, he had that bit of, uh, he, could, he could think like an engineer. He's a good electrician, I, I remember. So, yeah, I, it, it, that's, that's sort of my dad. He, 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 he wanted to help establish a legitimate industry that was not just a, also ran, but ha- could stand in its own right uh, up against California. Yeah, and I think it's that think big idea yeah. <laughs> that, that he certainly yes. wanted for us, couldn't achieve for himself. Yes. Um, and, and frankly, in those days, none of us individually could have achieved because we were, if we had more money than Chuck, it was a penny or two. It was right. not much. Yes. And, and so the initiative for collaboration really, I think, came from your father, it fell into receptive hands, if you will. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that you think about the remarkable people that were the foundation of the Oregon wine industry. I mean, these are really sharp folks. Yeah, and, and coming out of a whole different, a whole set of universes so yes. that they, yeah, yeah. Well, and this one, this bottle was the first label, and this particular font or Logo from Oregon came from Oregon. Word art, even. Yeah, 
came from Oregon Fruit Products. So my dad got, was, got a job with Oregon Fruit Products as a sales manager. And uh, he got permission from Mark, Tep Mark uh, Gaylor, who was the owner of Oregon Fruit Products, to use the exact same logo on that. So that's how he, that's, he did. So he used it, and that's how he came up. He just loved that Oregon label and decided he's going to put it. So Oregon, you can see, he's, it wasn't, I oh, mean, yeah. Charles Corey's here, but it was yeah. Oregon. And he, his first label was Oregon. Right. <laughs> yeah, so that was, that was, uh, that was pretty, pretty important for him to pitch Oregon. I mean, he was a pitchman for Oregon. Yeah, he's, he certainly was that. So again, just, I think, these are new, elaborations on yeah, that new, one. New no, new labels. You know, nothing, nothing with that big Oregon Spa. I think he just decided to update what they thought was a more modern label. Yeah. But I, I think this is interesting that his first instinct was to yeah. just, just blast out Oregon. <laughs> he was going to make a statement. Yeah. A uh, pretty bold statement um, for a wine label when you really get down to it. Yeah. a blind wine tasting in which we tasted anybody who had a Pinot Noir wine in a bottle could bring it to this tasting and all we were tasting for was what clone was it made from. <laughs> wow. I mean, we couldn't, we, we didn't know, but they would tell us and we would compare let had Vadensville clones and somebody had something from from the Pomar clone. Uh, your dad, I think, probably had something from 538, which probably is what the Corey selection is. But the, these Pomar clones were just round and juicy, and they were not too acidic or too tannic. They had a great name for the clone, Pomar. Yeah. And and so starting the next year, we all wanted to buy Pomar clone to plant. And and at that time, I was buying from your father, and um, we put in a couple of orders, and he fell behind, and he said, "Well, I've got this much for you." And I'll and we planted the upper block at uh, Quarter Mile Lane Vineyard, but there weren't any plants for the lower block. Uh, that was okay. They they were delivered in July, and we planted those. And eventually, when those grapevines started producing, they were very different. Mm. And the lower block tasted like pomar, like what other people made that was from pomar, but the upper block, not so much. And I asked your dad, where did you get these cuttings? And he told me some guy named Clementi and... I don't know if it was Central Valley or Sonoma or wherever, I called him up and said, what clone did you sell to Quarry? And he said, clone? No, we sold him Pinot Noir. Oh. So mm. we, we look at this one two and a half acre block in our vineyard, which is the only surviving block that does have some phylloxera but is mostly still there and say, we don't know what the clonal selection yeah. is, but boy, is it good. And, <laughs> and boy, is it unique. It doesn't taste like anything from anybody. Mm. 
Interesting. But getting behind in a nursery is not a one-time problem, that's for yeah. sure. And it, and it was, I, I think in some senses, your father wanted to supply grapes for everybody. Yes, it would make him money, that would be great. But just as importantly, it would help build the industry. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he, yeah, it was a way to bootstrap. He wasn't trying to get rich off it. He was just trying no, to, no. To, to survive and keep it going. I, you know, I don't know what shenanigans he played with, with the Corey clone. I, I don't actually, I never really got into that, whether, you know, right. the suitcase cuttings. Uh, you know, my aunt insisted he sent it through Berkeley, uh, but that's not the story he's told Joel, my friend Joel Meyer, so... I suspect, I mean, I do know that Ooglan, they were doing all that clonal work and said, this is the best Pinot I've got. Right. And, and that uh, would I have been 538, I think. Well, I think now it's got its own, right, 136, I think it's. That, yes, that's the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the national number. Right. But the Alsace number yes. was 538. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it was really Pierre Ooglan, who's the real, uh, not my dad. <laughs> my dad was just a messenger in a way. Right, right. For, uh, and why Alsace should have a, such a great Pinot Noir is another mystery to me, right? I mean, what is... Well, in those days, you'd think that when you bought a, a Pinot Noir in Alsace, it was barely a rosé. I know. Yeah. 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 Now they're making some amazing red wine, but right. they did that by going a little... A, a little to the east, a little to the west, right. and seeing what was going on in Burgundy, and coming back and strictly limiting yields yeah. and changing all the clones and everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so there. That's that's all I can tell you about the Cory clone. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, they're Rusty Gaffney, the the yeah. the, the the medical doctor. Who, has a website called Prince of Pinot, did all the research that anybody could ever do. Yeah. And I, I don't know that he actually figured it out either. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. You're now an observer to the wine industry. I am an observer, yes. And are you able to take some pride or vicarious pride in what has been accomplished? Um... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way. It's a sort of a philosophical question. Does history make the man or man make the history? I, I, I think there was a, there's a, 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 my person, my business now is the wood ceiling business. And I read a book years ago called Megatrends by John Naisbad. He is a futurologist. And he made the observation uh, in his book called High Tech, High Touch. And he observed that as his thesis was that as humans move towards digital, virtual reality, this video, right, it's a digital, it's going to be watched digitally. Humans actually need a counterbalance that's sensual, tactile, concrete, or they'll actually end up rejecting virtual digital reality. They, they can only handle so much. We are, after all, yeah. embodied souls. We, yeah, and we, and, and we so, weren't all born with video. That's right. Yeah. And so I, I think the cultural trend he, of wine and uh, wool and cotton and natural fibers and you know going down to Lowe's and Home Depot and building something on the weekend, all these gardening 
I think the wine industry is part of a, a even larger than just Oregon. It's a cultural almost requirement to survive in a digital age, right? To me, it, it, it was more like I see him more as surfing. You guys were surfers on this wave that was coming. I mean, w wine was going to come, just like cigars and all these, these good coffee. I mean, coffee is good now. It used to be terrible, right? Uh, I, so I, I see this more as, you know, sort of more, you guys caught a wave. Did you create the wave? Mm, I don't know. I, for some reason, I don't see it that way. I see it more, uh, you, my dad had the insight to, to see the wave, to catch the wave, just like beer. He didn't, he caught that wave. He saw that he, he was in his own way a futurologist. He could see a wave and, and sort of, yeah. It was, he just had a hard time staying on the surfboard. <laughs> you used that analogy with your dad before? No, never, never. I just came up with that one. <laughs> that's, that's actually pretty good. My role with your father was often to sort of try to understand where he was trying to go and then go do the work. Mm, yeah. um, there were... Lots of incidents. I mean, the clonal one is is the most obvious one, where I'm the one that went to Burgundy and to Alsace and to, and to the south of France and uh, made contacts, and ultimately that resulted in legal importation That's of right. these clones. He had a lot of that vision, but for whatever reason, he wasn't going to do it. And I, I'm sure living with your father in any respect would result in arguments um, no matter what. And so I'm sure there were some, but I don't, mostly I recall the amazing things that Chuck did for us, our winery, weeding our vineyard in the spring of 73 when we had no idea that we had to get the weeds out before they started growing, loaning me a, a filter when he was in the, just starting collecting equipment in the brew business, and we had bottled a black Chardonnay, which clearly needed some help, and one of the things that it needed was a good filtration, and all those kinds of things that your father did that isn't necessarily what he's remembered for. Yeah, right. Um, because he's often, I mean, people were afraid of him from time to time. Yeah, yeah, well, he could be. He, he could be very overbearing, but you're right. He was he was actually very generous person. It's kind of a strange, but yeah, he could be very generous yeah. as well as overbearing. <laughs> so. <laughs> so my my dad, after he retired, he had neighbors that he could not get along with, and the guy somehow came at my dad, and so my dad sprayed him with his hose, because he was out watering, and he sprayed it with the hose, so the guy called the cops on my dad. And uh, they were both, the, basically both arrested, the, guy, the neighbor and my dad. And so the, um, the, the, you could take, you know, anger management course and go away, or you could go to court. And my dad, I'm going to court. <laughs> So he went to court and he won. He, they, they, he, he was declared innocent, but he said to me, and then this young, the young uh, district attorney came up to me and put his hand on my shoulder and say, said to me, Mr. Corey, 
I don't want to see you in here again. <laughs> my dad got a big kick out of it. Uh, yeah, that's my dad. I, I can't tell you um, what a pleasure it is to spend time with you. Well, because we don't all have time, the opportunity to think back to this yeah. period of the, in, in your case, the 60s and the early 70s for me, uh, to understand what things were like at that point and how far we've come. And yet, uh, as, as you just pointed out, um, uh, we still need the high-touch aspect of wine as, as much as we may have needed it back then to counter whatever else was going on in our lives. Yeah, yeah. Well, David, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. It's uh, always, uh, it's been a, a journey of memory for me, actually. It's amazing how, like the, the Mike Elwood, I could not tell, I don't know what that guy's name is, but I slept on it for a few nights and the, the name came to me. Nice. I hadn't thought of that for, yeah, it was amazing. So, here. Cheers. Cheers. Congratulations to you. Well, yeah. And, and to us. Okay. Thank you for listening to Founder Stories, the podcast. This episode was produced by Adelsheim Vineyard in partnership with House Below Productions. New episodes are released monthly, and you can find them on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Visit our website, adelsheim.com slash 50 years to watch full interviews of David Adelsheim with the other founders of the Willamette Valley wine industry. And join us as we pay homage to half a century of lofty dreams, pioneering spirits, and world-class wine.